I really think, and I realize those that know me, know me this way, I think. It's kind of my makeup and my nature, but really I would be considered in today's vernacular as someone who is one of those glasses half full people. It's the way I look at things. I'm, I'm a fairly optimistic person. In fact, usually I have to be proven wrong about somebody because usually I feel about them and give them the benefit of the doubt and see the positive first, and then over time it may not be that way. But saying that, let me just say this. I really believe that with those that are of the, of the body of Christ, and when I say this, I don't mean this from a standpoint of 100% of the people. I'm saying, by and large, for the most part, members of the body of Christ that are coming together and attempting on a regular basis to worship God, I believe that those people, for the most part, truly have a sincere desire to serve God. They truly want to live the Christian life. Now, they don't always do that, and sometimes they fail, and sometimes they stumble, because right alongside their desire to do what's right is also the desire and all the allurements in the world, similar things that Daryl pointed out in our sermon this morning. The point being is this, I do believe, though, that for the most part, instead of looking at the body of Christ and all the members that are part of it, on a bleak side or from the standpoint of a negative side, I really believe that the majority of members of the body of Christ who are attempting to serve God and worship Him truly have a desire to be a Christian. That being said also, I think that there are the majority of people that are Christians living like that and having the desire to live as a Christian I think that the majority of those people also are excited about the Lord. And deep down, they have a tremendous desire to share the gospel of Christ with those that they come in contact with. But the problem is, number one, sometimes in doing so, they simply feel awkward in their attempts to talk to others. Maybe that is you. Maybe you had a, a sincere desire to talk to a family member or a friend of yours about the Bible and about the Lord and so on and about the Lord's church, but you felt awkward in bringing up the conversation. Maybe perhaps you tried to bring things up from time to time and it just didn't go very well. Or secondly, sometimes people simply don't know how to establish a contact with someone for a Bible study. And because of that, many are caused to have uh, frustrations and experience frustrations that discourage them from ever trying again. My point this evening is this. Perhaps you and I can learn a little something from Jesus, the master teacher the greatest one that ever lived, and the greatest teacher as well, who often engaged not only in public preaching, but in personal evangelism as well. Like, for example, in our text this evening, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to John. And as we observe Jesus in action, it is possible to glean seven different principles of personal evangelism that we would do very well to remember in our efforts to teach others. Number one, we find that one of the things that Jesus does is he first of all establishes a social contact. It is important before we go any further with anyone, you cannot take the gospel to those that are lost before you have a contact with the people. 
And notice, we need to do as Jesus did, and number one, establish a social contact. Now then, in the first six verses of John chapter 4, uh, beginning there in verse 1, notice these words. Notice what Jesus did on purpose. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Very interesting. Can you imagine a Jew by blood purposely going to Samaria and having any kind of social contact at all with a Samaritan? You know, a Samaritan was considered a mongrel race among the Jews. It was a combination of a Jew and a Gentile, and that was simply something that you didn't do. And that was something that a Jew by blood would have absolutely nothing to do with a Samaritan. You know, in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus, there were many times when there were those that would try to discredit him. There were those that would throw accusations at him. There were those that when they heard and they witnessed the things that he preached, the things that he did, the following that he had, that there were many that would try to throw a wrench in the plan, as it were, and try to discredit Jesus somehow, some way. And many times they said hurtful and hateful and awful things to and about the Lord. But do you remember on one occasion there was a time when those that were before him were trying to discredit him and they had exhausted everything possible they can think about that was an awful name to cast before him or they couldn't think of anything worse than they've already said and when they exhausted every single one of them they finally said thou art a Samaritan and hath the devil. Oh, it was an awful thing for a Jew to have anything to do with a Samaritan. And yet Jesus purposely goes through Samaria and he has a contact socially with this woman. Jesus and his disciples chose to pass through Samaria, assuring contact with them. There was another time, you remember, in the book of Luke, the fifth chapter, where Jesus is going to establish a social contact. Beginning there in Luke chapter 5 and verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Now notice, Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the master teacher. He's the Son of God. And notice, he's going to use uh, an occasion like this where there were people that would be considered the lowest of the low. There would be people there like publicans, tax collectors, who were extortioners and were the kind of people that no one had anything to do with that was any good. Oh, their friends and their companions were the lowest of the low and even the sinners as well. But notice what happens on this occasion. 
But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, that was another occasion when Jesus uh, chose a social contact on this regard. Now, what we're going to find out, though, and this is very, very important, there's a difference between having a social contact with someone that is in the world that is considered a sinner. And by the way, there is no degree of sinner. A sinner is a sinner, and one that is living what they believe to be a moral life, but is not a member of the body of Christ because they've never contacted the blood of Jesus, they are still in their sins. So let's look at it from that standpoint for just a moment. The world classifies, here's a moral person, someone that doesn't use foul language, someone that, as Daryl pointed out, loves his wife and his family. He's active with his children. He's leading his family to the best that he knows how, but he is not a member of the body of Christ. He is in his sin, and there's no difference in the eyes of God between that gentleman right there that's considered in society to be a moral man and one that is the vilest of all vile in the world. They're both sinners. They're both in need of salvation. Now, let me point this out. When Jesus ate with the publicans and the sinners, he didn't do so to partake in their sinful practice. He didn't do, he didn't do so to support their sinful ways. He did so so that he might have an opportunity to save them. And you and I must have social contact with people that are in the world that are considered morally good but still a sinner and those that are considered morally bad and still a sinner because we ought to go into all the world, the Bible says, and preach the gospel to every creature. There's a difference, though, between partaking in their sin and we can never do that. We need to go where the people go. Let me read to you what a man said one time. I thought it was rather interesting in his assessment of evangelism and, and so on. He said, when we look out into society and we see that people aren't coming to Christ on a regular basis, maybe it's because we're not coming to the people. After all, we're to be fishers of men. And if we are to be a fisher of men, we cannot fish in a barrel. We have to go where the fish are. And then he said, the problem with sowing the seed is not that there's not good ground to be found, but quite perhaps one of the greatest reasons why the furtherance of the gospel does not show or bear more fruit is just maybe we're leaving the seed in the barn. Interesting. You know, when we talk about going overseas and we go to poverty-stricken areas about their reception to the gospel, it's all true. It is true. They're receptive to the gospel. We preach the same message and so on and so forth. All I'm saying is this. Let us never, because I've heard members of the body of Christ say this, it's no use here. The only way we're going to grow as the church is to do so overseas, to go into foreign fields, and so on and so forth. When we do that, what we're doing is we are making a line here and saying we can't save souls here anymore. We have to go there. And maybe 
we're leaving the seed in the barn. And let me just say this. What if we only converted one person in an entire year? Now let me just say a few things about a little bit of history here over the last few years. There was a period of time, in a short period of time, that we, as the members of Plans Road, working together by your influence and your contacts and, and all of us sharing in the load and sharing in the labor, we either baptized or restored some 20-some over a two-year period. But you know, all that is, if you look at the law of averages over a string of time, it all pans out. It's not that all of a sudden the gospel seed was of no effect anymore. But let's just remember this. Let's remember when we don't see visible results that are before us that encourage us and inspire us. And incidentally, when we see results, it doesn't matter how tired you are. It doesn't matter what you must do. It gives you the charge and the energy to keep on going. What I'm saying is this. Let's take the seed of the gospel to those that are lost and have the same enthusiasm behind it because it is the seed, it does have the power to save and do our part and never say it can't be done anymore. People just aren't interested. You know, Wednesday evenings we're studying about the long-suffering of God. Amazing principle. Amazing principle. But think about it this way. We know that this world is still standing because of the long-suffering of God. That's the only reason. Because God is being patient. And I don't know when he'll call an end to that, but he will, like he did with Noah while the ark was preparing. But then he called it down and he called a halt to it. But you think about it this way. In this year, if someone obeys the gospel in this community and becomes a member of this congregation... Look at it like that. God's long-suffering was for them. The next year, God's long-suffering was for them. When there are members of the body of Christ that have turned their back and gone into the ways of the world, when they come back, just remember the long-suffering of God was for them too. And even those that are still lost and not coming back, the patient long-suffering of God is waiting for them. And let's take the seed of the gospel and bring it out of the barn. I think it's important, though, that we don't confuse separation with isolation. It is true that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning there in verse 14, it is true that he said this. He said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God had said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It is true that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For sake of a better term, we walk to the beat of a different drummer, we have a different standard, and therefore we need not have those kind of relationships, whether it's in business or any other kind, with those that are in the world and unbelievers. Now, saying all that, don't confuse separation with isolation. 
Hear the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. You know, I think this is amazing because Jesus, knowing exactly what his disciples were going to face, and in his prayer, he prays like this. Beginning in verse 14 of John chapter 17, he said, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. There it is. That's not isolation. That is separation. What did he say? He said, praying to his father, I have given my disciples your word. And because of that, the world hates them as they've hated me because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. So there it is. There is a separation there. But notice the very next verse. Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. He doesn't pray that they'll be removed from the world. He prays that they'll be removed from evil. That they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Folks, that's talking to me and you too. That's talking about someone down the stream of time that has obeyed the gospel and obeyed the word that was left behind. And here it is, and that's me and you. And the prayer of Jesus is exactly the same. Not that we'll be removed from the world and isolated from it, but that we would be removed from evil. But we've been sent into the world to preach the gospel of peace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul also points out something that is similar to this idea. Paul is drawing a distinction between people that are in the world with our relationship with them that are in sin and people that are in the church that are in sin. There's a difference. And the Apostle Paul, in dealing with a horrible condition that was in Corinth, said this, beginning in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with the idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat." So when he said, don't have company with fornicators, he's talking about the ones that would call themselves a brother in Christ. And the reason for that, here's the reason, because the number one purpose is to keep the church pure. And number two is so that they will repent and get their life right. And that's the reason. But the ones in the world, folks, we got to go save them. We've been sent out into the world with this charge to do that very thing. So separation does not mean isolation. And withdrawing ourselves from those who have not obeyed the gospel or those that have not heard the gospel is contrary to the will of the Lord. Opportunities for social contact happen every day. We come in contact with people every day in school, in work, 
in our homes, our neighbors, our friends, our families. There is people that we can have social contacts with every day of our life. And we must make the effort to talk to them as best we can. But secondly, from the example of Jesus, we find that once a social contact is made, then we must figure out a way to establish a common interest. And that's point number two, a common interest. You know, I'll tell you something. It is true that when we live in the world as Christians, it's really easy to think that we have nothing in common with people that are living in the world. And it's real convenient to isolate ourselves and say that we're only going to hide in our houses or we're only going to be around Christians and nowhere else because we have nothing in common with folks in the world. I think we'd be surprised how many things that we have in common. We must establish a common interest with them. And the reason for that is a common interest will build a bridge between two uncommon people. A common interest builds a bridge between two uncommon people. Notice in John chapter 4, back to our text, and beginning in verse number 7. Notice what happens there. In verse 7, it says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. So notice, he makes the social contact, and then he establishes a common interest with her. She came to dip and draw water, and he was thirsty. So he began a conversation with her that was of a common interest, and that was with regards to water. Realizing the need to build rapport, having a meaningful dialogue is not easy, and I think we all understand that. To start and establish a meaningful dialogue with somebody is not always an easy task to do. But if you can build a bridge with a common interest, now you may have a listener. You might think, well, wait a minute. What kind of a common interest? Let me ask you this. Are there parents here in this audience tonight? Are there mothers and fathers here? Do you like your kids? What about grandparents? Oh, grandparents. You ever see grandparents talk about their grandkids? You ever see grandparents wear little badges with the pictures of their grandchildren on them? You ever see grandparents go out there in the blistering sun and a little umbrella and a, and a lawn chair and watch their grandchild participate in some activity? Guess what? She's sitting there next to other grandparents and other parents as well. You'd be surprised how much we have in common with others in every single walk of our life in everything we do. Do you like sports? I do. You know, I get in a conversation with somebody about sports almost every day that I didn't know before. That's a common interest. It's a common interest. What we're doing is we are building up equity in that relationship. We are building a bridge between us and we are building up a rapport because our desire is not to stop here at the common interest. Our desire is to go further from that point in time. 
But you know something else too? You'd be surprised how many people that you know that have gone through a tragedy that was similar to something that you have gone through. I'm not saying the exact same thing. I'm saying something that is similar. And I'll tell you something, when you start talking about tragedies and things that pull on the heart, you start talking about sad things, and you talk to somebody about that, you can have two people that are going this way completely in opposite directions, and then all of a sudden, you can get into a, con a conversation, you made the social contact, you established the common interest by sharing with them and listening to them too, and all of a sudden, you have something in common. Barriers are down, bridges are built, and rapport is being built up in that relationship. You know, I'll just tell you this. I got to admit something to you. I use it. I do. I really do. I'll, I'll, use, I'll use whatever. I'll use whatever circumstance in my life, bad or good, if it's going to draw me closer to someone else with a common interest. I think that's important that we do that. We need to care enough about them. Share something personal about yourself. I'll tell you something. You share something personal, now you're not preaching to them. You're not preaching at them. You're not preaching. You're, all you're doing is you are sharing with someone that I've had problems in my life too. I've had challenges. And you bear yourself to them they do to you, and all of a sudden you no longer are just someone preaching the Bible. You are a friend, and you have something in common. You have a common interest, and you can build on that. But we don't want to stay there. We want to move on from that as Jesus did. Jesus began with the common interest of water, but it's important that we arouse a spiritual interest. In our dealings with people, we want our common interest to turn into a spiritual interest. Look in verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Notice. She is looking at his example before he's going to speak about things that she was interested in spiritually. She looked at his action. She looked at his example based upon the common interest. And all of a sudden, he has a listener. And she looks back to him and says, I'm a woman of Samaria, and you're a man that is a Jew. How is it that someone like you, that's a Jew, a man, a Jewish man like you, would have anything to do with a Samaritan woman? You would have nothing to do. After all, she reminds Jesus that the Jews in general had nothing to do with the Samaritans. Oh, he has her attention. Why? Because of his actions to her. Oh, I'll tell you, that's interesting, isn't it? That by action, before he spoke spiritual words, his actions drew her attention. You know what that tells me? That tells me that every single good and kind deed you do to anybody in the world, it's being noticed and it's being watched. You know, I think about the, I think about the, the quiet things. I think about the things that sometimes go unnoticed. <laughs> I realize that it is true. I realize that someday 
the good things or the bad things, the things done in secret, God sees every one of them. And I know that when we do good things in this life that sometimes does not go noticed, I know that one day we're going to hear those good things again. But all that being said, you never know the impact that you have for good on the life of someone that's in the world because of some kind deed that you did for them. I'm not talking about members of the church, folks. I'm talking about people in the world. And you go out of your way, and you took your time, and you took your effort, and you did something for them. Listen, if they know that the reason you did it was because you're a Christian, look at the influence that you might have in their life someday. Oh, Jesus established a spiritual interest because of his actions. Regarding our actions, we can arouse spiritual in, uh, interest in that way as well by showing kindness and compassion to all those in the world, even those that are evil and wicked, by not harboring racial or social prejudices to those who are different than we are, and by our own example of faith and hope. Do you remember on Wednesday nights when we studied uh, 1 Peter? Do you remember when we talked about the idea that a Two people were married, and one obeys the gospel, and it's the woman. Obviously, the woman's converted by the word. But the same word didn't convert the husband. What did Peter say? Peter said, you live your life in your marriage relationship, in the proper marriage relationship that you should have, according to what the Bible teaches, that a woman is supposed to be with her husband. And just so happens that by your life you may convert them because they know that the reason you are the wife that you are and the person you are is because you're a Christian. You know, I'm going to pick on Ryan. He's not here tonight. But you know, Ryan has worked for me for years. We all know that. And I can't tell you the number of times when people have come to me and said, I got to tell you something. The kid's not perfect but man, does he have your back. That's the most honest kid I've ever met. If the world knows that he does that because he's a Christian, he just has established possibly a spiritual interest in the life of someone else. If I as an employer or Terry as an employer or anyone treats the people that are subordinate to their authority in the proper way, and they know that it's because you're a Christian, you have the spiritual interest. If it's possible to have it, you have it then. The Apostle Paul dealt with servants and masters and so on. We don't have servants and masters by way of slavery, but we do have employer and employee relationships. We do have those things. That is a fact. And I'll tell you something, folks. When we do those things by our actions, the world is watching. I know I say it a lot, and I don't care. I'll say it again. The world is watching everything, everything that we do. And if you don't believe me, you can do good things, good things, good things, good things, and then all of a sudden stub your toe, and if you don't think they're watching, you're going to hear about the stubbed toe. They're watching. But Jesus also established a spiritual interest by his words, and we do the same too. Now dropping down now, beginning in verse 10. 
Jesus answered, now he has a listener, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, from whence thou hast thou that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The statement of Jesus now shifts, and their conversation now is on spiritual matters. He led them into a discussion on a common spiritual interest, and that's living water. She says, how can you ask me for water? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, if only you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water, and I would give it unto thee, and it's living water. Oh, he has her attention and she says, I want it. I want the living water. Well, regarding our words, we can raise questions or make statements that shift conversations to spiritual matters as well. But it's important that the discussion first involve matters of common agreement. I don't have time to go into this uh, in detail, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to mention the passage. You can write it down if you'd like, those that are taking notes, and look at it on your own time. But time will not permit me to go into it. Acts 13, beginning in verse 16. This is how important it is to establish. Now, we have the great apostle Paul as our example. And he goes into Antioch, and he goes into the synagogue. And he's waiting there, and all of a sudden he's asked, as was the custom, if anyone would like to uh, get up and say something. And he arises, and what does he do? He begins with things that they had in common. He starts talking about things, about the God that they have always served. He starts going down through Bible history, things that they agree on. And then all of a sudden... After several verses, he now begins to speak about the Messiah and that salvation was for them too. And the same God that they had always known and served, that they knew all the things that God has done by delivering his people of old and so on and so forth, that same God sent a Savior and that Savior was for them too. Important that we establish things that we have in common before we press on. But finally, tonight, I'm just going to talk about four things tonight. And that is this. And sometimes we, we fail on this one because we get excited. Nothing wrong with getting excited, but we get excited. We want to give the whole thing to them. We're ready to go. We're so excited. The possibility and the prospect of them obeying the gospel, and we're really chomping at the bit. But what Jesus shows is this idea. Don't go too far too fast. Right after she says, the, the woman says to Jesus, give me this water. 
Notice how Jesus responds. First of all, in verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. But notice what Jesus says. Very interesting. He says unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman saith, saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Here's the point. The entire point is, don't give a person more than they're ready to hear. In this discussion, she wanted living water, but she didn't really understand. She loved the idea of hearing about living water. I'll never thirst again. This is a great thing. I want it. Let me have that. Oh, she needed the Savior. She needed salvation. She needed Jesus. She needed all of those things. She needed faith in Him as the Messiah. But He needed to provide evidence that He was the Messiah first. So instead of giving her living water, he tells her to get her husband, which will result in her conviction of him as a prophet. You know, sometimes folks want to talk about, you ever talk to somebody that's in the religious world or somebody wants to talk about the Bible, they want to talk about the Revelation letter, they want to talk about various things in, in the book of Revelation. You know what they need? They don't need that. They need the gospel. They need to hear the simple gospel. They're so far ahead of themselves, they need to be redirected and brought back. And it's very important when we study with people and when we talk to people that we do this. We have a social contact with them. Got to have it. If you don't have that, you'll have no rapport. You establish a common interest that builds bridges in the lives of others. And whatever was separating you, you now have something that's in common. Even a Samaritan woman that was an immoral woman with an immoral past... And the Lamb of God established a common interest. Now, if they can do it, I can do it with anybody. Because I guarantee you, I got a lot more in common with somebody in the world than Jesus does. And so do you. If he can do it, we can too. Establish a spiritual interest based upon your actions like Jesus did. And finally, by your words also, and don't go too far too fast. You know, there's other things that we're going to discuss when we come back at another time. In conclusion, I just want to jump ahead to one thing and just give us a little bit of an insight on some things that happened after this discussion that Jesus had with this woman. We find that because of the testimony of this woman, because of the fact that he didn't go too far too fast, he offered proof to her and she went to others and she said, this man is a prophet. This man knew everything in my past. He must be the Christ. And people were converted because of her testimony later on. And you know, Jesus says something very powerful. He said this to his disciples. He talks about there's going to be those that are going to sow and those that are going to reap. Sometimes we do the sowing and we never reap the harvest. Oh, make no mistake. Me and Don King, oh, it felt great. We reaped the harvest, sure. But I'm going to tell you something. There was people preaching before we ever got there. There was people sowing. You know what the greatest thing is, though? You know what Jesus said? We all get to rejoice together. 
And it doesn't matter who reaped the harvest and who did the sowing. The point is we have to sow and another will reap, but we will all reap the harvest. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.